All right, good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another enigmatic episode of Cryptique. No jokes tonight. Ryan, what's up? Not a whole lot. I'm a little thrown off by that, but I, I think I'll get over the shock eventually. I certainly hope so. But I can tell everybody what they need to know if you'd like me to. Let's do that. All right, so please like, comment, interact however you can to help us with the algorithm. Share the show with somebody who you think will like it. Find our socials in the show notes. Email us if you want to talk at crypticpodcast.gmail.com. Check out what we've got going on over at crypticpodcaststore.com. And you can always help us keep the servers on at Buy Me and Coffee. We got some e- speed round. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm done. <laughs> All right, we got some emails. Bryce from Virginia says he loves the exorcism episodes and wants more. We have the exorcism of, I want to say, Cindy Sauer is on the horizon. So we have, we do have some on the way. Uh, so yeah, keep your ears open, Bryce. You got to uh, subscribe so you never miss an episode. Julia from Brisbane. Is that how you say it or is it Brisbane? Brisbane. Brisbane. Julia from Brisbane says she's binging episodes and likes the episode with two-time Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion Anthony. She says she was inspired to try it out and found a local gym where she's lost about 10 pounds. Yeah. Congrats and keep up the good work and you will learn how to defend yourself, not just lose weight, but losing weight and getting in shape is a big part of it. So keep up the good work and to our listeners if you haven't listened to that episode it's it's from probably about a year ago but uh, she goes over some of the fundamentals and how jujitsu is great for women because you with good technique you can take somebody out that's a lot bigger and stronger than you so i would say that this it's a must-do. Just at least go visit a local BJJ gym and see what they have to say. Most places have a you know a free class at least, and just go in and check it out. There, I've had nothing but wonderful experiences, and my daughter takes about eight hours of classes a week, so she's into it. She wants to be able to beat her dad up. No, you can't go out with that guy. Oh, oh, I'm tapping. You know, I'm getting choked out. Yeah. All right. Well, that's enough (laughs) of the business. You want to tell us about the mysterious Valley of Death? Sure. Yes. The mysterious Valley of Death in Kamchatka. Is that how? That works. Yeah. (laughs) Kamchatka. It it almost seems too straightforward. The mysterious Valley of Death in Kamchatka. Oh, my God. I think I'm having a stroke. Kamchatka. The mysterious valley of death in Kamchatka. A deadly enigma unraveled. Told you. I like I like working enigma in there wherever you can. <laughs> That's good. Old Yakushin legends described a series of destructive explosions and fireballs blasting from the earth during a battle between the gods Nirjin Batur and Tong Durai. That's how I'm going to say. I'm committing to those those pronunciations. Tongue dry. Tongue dry. Tongue dry. <laughs> Smooth dome shaped iron houses were left in the ruined taiga after the battle. 
1853, Russian Siberian explorer R.K. Mach writes in his book, The Vilyoy Region, that the side of a giant submerged metal cauldron protrudes from the ground near the Vilyoy tributary, but only the rim is visible and there are trees growing out of it. I want to say that makes it sound huge, but then again, I see trees growing out of all kinds of things they shouldn't. Like there's really hardy trees that grow out of the middle of the divider on the highway. (laughs) Right. But survive on broken beer bottles and gravel. All right. In 1908, a yet-to-be-explained fiery ball known as the Tungus meteorite exploded over Siberia. The so-called Chulim Bolid followed in 1984, copying the path of this meteorite with surprising precision. So I guess what they mean is surprising. Hitting the same spot. Yeah, hitting the same spot, maybe taking the same trajectory, because they are yeah. saying the path was the same. Which would be odd, I would think, in the grand scheme of things, to take the exact same path as a meteorite from, you know, 80 years before. Yeah, Yeah. mathematically, probably fairly unusual. In 1989, so jumping way far forward, N.D. Arkhipov, a researcher into ancient cultures in Yakutia, writes in his book, Drevnaya Yakutia, or Ancient Yakutia, which I probably should have just read instead, instead yeah. of pissing off anybody <laughs> who knows, like has any kind of Slavic ancestry. Right. <laughs> that among the population uh, of this basin, there is a legend from ancient times about the existence in the upper reaches of that river of bronze cauldrons or Olgui or Olguis. I'm not sure how to say that. In 1996, a small Russian magazine publishes an article by ufologist A. Gudnev about the mystery of the cauldrons and the valley of death, which he attributed to extraterrestrials. In 2004, Dr. Valery Yuvarov published a longer, more in-depth English version of the article on the internet, making the mystery known to the rest of the world. The Kamchatka Peninsula, nestled in the remote far east of Russia, is a picturesque landscape dominated by eruptive mountains and covered in a pristine blanket of snow, creating a winter wonderland. And as soon as you say winter wonderland, of course, I think of like... uh... Mariah Carey. No, God. (laughs) Although, there's that Mariah Carey song. There's a really great... uh... What is her song called? All I Want for Christmas. Yes. And it's All I Want... Everybody hates that all I want is the beautiful people and it's Marilyn Manson mashed up with that. And it's so good. It's really good. I think check it out. Kim and I were at a Christmas party at a club in Austin, (laughs) just a weird thing we happened to do one year and they played this and it was so good. Like it was, we were just like, first off it was an unusual crowd as you might expect with you there. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, well, this, <laughs> this is really good. Like, this is so much better than the original. But no, I'm more thinking of, uh, oh my God, what am I trying to, the, what, the antlers. The antlers. Just Rudolph, the him. reindeer, no. No, Wendigo. Wendigo. God, I couldn't get that yeah. out. Yeah, it reminds me of, I'm thinking of like, anytime I think of a winter wonderland, I think of like a Wendigo just popping out. Be like, no, no. It happens. Not a wonderland. <laughs> Not anymore. Ah. <sighs> All right. The region is not only beautiful, but also incredibly biodiverse, housing a myriad of aquatic, aerial, and terrestrial species, which is a very fancy way of saying all that. Mm -hmm. However, amidst the breathtaking scenery, there lies a chilling mystery, a valley where animals enter but never leave, succumbing to an invisible threat that has puzzled scientists for decades. 
1975, Vladimir Leonov, a renowned volcanologist from Russia's Institute of Volcanology and Seismology, stumbled upon this deadly enigma. Now, he's, we're not talking about somebody who's studying Spock, right? When we say volcanologist? No. Yeah. I mean, that, that mm. did actually cross my mind reading that, but no. Volcanoes. Mm -hmm. In a small valley within the... Within this peninsula, so I'm not saying it again. There Various creatures from hares to birds appear in search of food and water when the snow melts. Yet many meet their demise shortly after entering. Predatory scavengers like wolverines are not spared either. They venture into the valley only to meet a swift end. The cause of these deaths is a phantom, a volcanic phenomena involving a common gas, one that is both familiar and lethal. The victims, preserved by nature's cold embrace, displayed no external injuries or signs of disease, leaving behind a baffling scene for any observer. Leonov and his colleague, Viktor Deryagin, undertook scientific analyses, gathering data on the strange location. The research revealed that the animals in the valley died swiftly and inexplicably. Their hearts lacked blood while their lungs were engorged, an indication that they had suffocated. But what could cause such a phenomena in this desolate valley? So setting up quite a mystery. Find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. The answer lies in the gases emitted by the Earth's restless volcanic activity. Volcanologists and zoologists have determined that the valley contains invisible and odorless volcanic gases, including carbon dioxide. This dense gas pulls in the valley's depressions, creating a lethal environment for any living creature that enters. Small animals, lured by the available vegetation in warmer months, unwittingly breathe in this deadly gas and meet their demise. Even scavengers, attracted to the fresh kills, succumb to the same fate. The Valley of Death has intrigued scientists and visitors alike, drawing them into its deadly embrace despite the risks. Visitors have reported symptoms such as painful cramps, dizziness, headaches, and weakness underscoring the danger posed by these invisible gases. The valley remains strictly off-limits, a haunting reminder of nature's unfathomable power. Despite the scientific understanding of the phenomenon, mysteries persist. Rumors abound that the corpses of the animals are regularly removed from the valley, although the truth behind these claims remains unverified. The allure of the Valley of Death continues to captivate scientific explorers, drawing them in with its morbid gravity and urging them to unveil the geological secrets hidden within its deadly depths. In the spirit of scientific inquiry, Vladimir Leonov had hoped that rigorous research would provide rational explanations for the animal deaths in the Valley of Death. His wish continues to drive scientists to delve deeper into this chilling mystery, unraveling the secrets of this remote and dangerous landscape. As long as the valley remains shrouded in enigma, it is likely to attract more scientific prospectors in the years to come as they bravely venture into the heart of this deadly phenomenon, seeking to uncover the truth behind nature's mysterious curse. You want to tell us about the cauldrons? Yes, I do. This is a good setup so far. Mysterious location, 
artifacts being reported, animals that go in and never come back out, no blood in the heart, but the lungs are engorged. It's this is all the making setting of something up. Let's so far. yeah. Let's the hope the rest of it is good. <laughs> <laughs> the indigenous people of Yakusha, also known as Yakushins, have long been intrigued by mysterious structures they call Olguis or cauldrons. I'm gonna I'm gonna hedge my bets and pronounce things a little differently sometimes. These objects are made of an unknown copper-like metal, possessing razor-sharp edges and extreme hardness. Extreme hardness. <laughs> <laughs> Despite their unique... We're so grown up. Despite their unique properties, no one has been able to cut even a fragment from them. Over time, the cauldrons slowly sink into the frozen ground, leaving behind large circular stains of dissimilar vegetation. These sites are considered dangerous, causing dizziness and fatal illness and those who approach. Due to these dangers, the elders declared the region cursed and named it the Valley of Death. In 1936, the geologists discovered a partially submerged cauldron near <laughs> the Olgadok River. This metal hemisphere with sharp edges and a reddish hue protruded from the ground. Despite the geologist's report to Yakutsk, there was no significant response. Numerous travelers have recounted tales of encountering these cauldrons in the Taiga area. One such traveler, Mikhail Kretsky, visited the Valley of Death three times between 1933 and 47. He observed seven mysterious cauldrons measuring six to nine meters in diameter. So nine meters in diameter will probably be bigger than the room I'm in. Probably. Yeah, nine meters for sure. Definitely bigger. I'm just trying to wrap my head around what you what you'd be seeing. Like <laughs> this this room, you could just pick it up and sit it in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's huge. And how would they get them there? Yeah, that's the yeah, that's the thing. Because when these people are going out, you can see pictures of them. They're riding reindeer. I mean, mm-hmm. literally using reindeer like horses, and yeah. they're not pulling it. Now, when you said um, Ogwi before. Basically, I'm pretty sure what that is, is it just means like a swampy highland kind of and like a marsh. Yeah, yeah. You're not you're not taking reindeer unless you're Santa and hooking up a 27 foot or what we say. Yeah, nine, nine meter. So, yeah. So so around around 27 feet, just say. Yeah, so you're not hooking that up to reindeer and having them drag it in there. So they really could have only come from the air. Yeah, well, the vegetation around these cauldrons appeared unusually lush compared to the surrounding area. Kind of similar to, you know, UFO landing sites where suddenly vegetation grows huge. Mm-hmm. Koretsky and his companions spent a night in one of the cauldrons, experiencing no major issues, although one member lost hair and developed unhealing pustules on the cheek where he slept. Well, that would be so major to me. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of odd that they reported it as no major issues, but it's like, I have this wound that won't heal on the side of my face and my hair fell out. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> like radiation to me, but yeah. What do I know? Despite these accounts, the remote location of these cauldrons discouraged further exploration. Makes sense. So just being so far out, not very many people get to them. Even an old Avini hunter's discovery of ironclad beings in 1971 failed to garner much attention. 
An archaeological expedition in 1979, guided by an elderly local who had seen the cauldrons in his youth, proved unsuccessful in locating them due to the dense vegetation. Today, these enigmatic cauldrons remain shrouded in mystery, with questions lingering about their origin, purpose, and even their existence, as no comprehensive expedition has ever been able to uncover any of these secrets. So I feel like it might be worth noting that just another thing to think about. I mean, if you have an area that is not maintained by people at all, it tends to get really dense in terms of vegetation, trees, whatever. Like, they just take over. Because I think an example of this, I, I swear I watched like a doc, like a nature kind of documentary years ago about having removed Native Americans from certain lands. You know, kind of colonialists came in and they were like, this is such a beautiful area. Let's get all these natives out of here and it'll be so much better. And then everything just went to shit downhill really fast. Yeah. Cause they didn't know what the natives were doing. They were doing things to help that environment thrive. And uh, yeah, so it's totally possible that you can have stuff that's super overgrown. And uh, I mean, I was just watching expedition unknown a couple nights ago, a new episode where they're looking for an abandoned city and the only way they can find anything is through like LIDAR and different mm -hmm. kinds of radar and stuff like that, because there's just so much vegetation that's grown up over it. Even if it's stone, there's things that have grown on top of it and over it. Oh, yeah. There's entire civilizations that have been reclaimed by the jungle. And then there's that that one show like After Humans or something like that, where they're like within 100 years you might not, I mean, you'd be able to recognize like Chicago and stuff like that, but you're not going to recognize a town, a, a, yeah. you know, a small town will be completely consumed. Everything will be grown over within 10 years. You won't even know anything was there. Yeah. So. Yeah. I watched these like urban exploration videos and the game horizon zero dawn or the, the series, the horizon series takes place. One of my like top a, favorites. Like a thousand years after the fall of human civilization, basically. And those buildings that are still standing look like buildings that people explore, that urban explorers go to that have been abandoned for like 20 years. Mm. Like it is crazy how fast stuff gets overgrown and nature kind of reclaims an area. It doesn't take mama nature very long to take back what she wants. Yeah, for sure. You can build... Uh, levees and all that stuff and at some point she's going to be like you know what fuck your levees yeah i don't like this I'm gonna flood anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right so we will get to the fact that no one gets out of here alive after a quick break welcome back here keepers the Yakushin Valley of Death and its mysterious cauldrons have captivated many due to the absence of eyewitness accounts. The prospect of discovering and exploring these metal hemispheres before they vanish entirely beneath the Earth's surface has intrigued researchers worldwide. Despite the lack of photographic evidence, scientists and metallurgists would undoubtedly value the opportunity to study samples of the rigid yet strangely unyielding metal present in these cauldrons. You think maybe they'd take some sort of a, a diamond tooth cutting tool and be able to at least get some scrapings or something, right? I mean, if 
And, and if you kind of know where something's at, I almost feel like there's got to be like a drone with a metal detector on it. You know, even just a weak metal detector. If we're talking about a, you know, 30 foot hemispherical metal object, that's going to put out you're going to be able to detect something like that. You don't necessarily need like a $10,000 uh, handheld model. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's yeah. not like you're hunting for uh tax or nails or something. Yeah. But I mean, even 27 feet in diameter and thousands of acres of wilderness that doesn't seem particularly hospitable it's probably pretty tough yeah. to find. And it sounds like most of the people who run across it, run across these are, it's just by accident. Yeah. Like they wouldn't happen to have the tools that you need. And if they go looking for them, they don't find them. Probably not a lot of uh, indigenous hunters that have a bunch of uh, diamonds on their blade. Yeah. Ready to yeah. Cut. <laughs> yeah. I've got my diamond tip bow and arrow set today. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Reports of illnesses and hair loss among Yakushan hunters who ventured near the cauldrons have raised questions about potential heightened radiation levels in the area. I would say so. Mm -hmm. However, the exact nature of this radiation and its potential risks remain elusive. Russian ufologists have proposed various theories suggesting that the cauldrons might be remnants of flying saucers from a mass accident or battle. Dr. Valery Yuvarov, a Russian researcher, speculates that these structures could be ancient technical installations created by extraterrestrial beings. Now, I don't know. I mean, obviously, he has done a lot more research on this than I have, but that seems like a stretch to just be like, well, my research points to alien technical installations made yeah. by extraterrestrials. But I mean, I guess it's as good of a theory as any, but it seems like a reach. Yeah. Yeah, it does a little bit. I don't know. I mean, I see there's so there's so little information about them. I feel like probably something Earth made terrestrials more likely. Hmm. And it's just because this environment is so infrequently traveled. I mean, it's a lot of stuff just gets repurposed. Yeah. Especially in the past. Like whatever these were, it's totally possible that there were more of them across a larger span of area, but they were taken and broken up and melted down and used for something else. I mean, even in Alton, one of the theories as to why Alton is so haunted is when they tore down an old Civil War prison, they reused all that limestone in like mm -hmm. little retaining walls and sidewalks and curbs and foundations and make sure like they get one in every house <laughs> yeah yeah we need to spread the misery as much as possible like this house this, this town's gonna be haunted as shit <laughs> it's gonna be great yeah. the tourist industry is gonna be great someday yeah and jeffrey sealman backed that up too he was a guest that that i had on when you had other stuff you had to do but yeah he's like that's totally he, he didn't call it stone tape theory he called mm -hmm. it something else but he's like yep that's that's exactly what I would think, too. So, yeah. But going back to Valery Uvarov, according to his theory, these plasma spheres protect our planet from outer space threats operating automatically. Mm. That's another big leap to me. Yeah, to say this is like a tower defense kind of thing, and it's... Well, yeah. if, you, if you have a theory and you're not able to prove that theory, then... 
I think you need to prove that before you continue to theorize, to you know, mind. like you, yeah, you can't be like, well, it was probably by aliens and it was probably put here to protect the planet and it probably works off, you know, Linux code and it probably has, you know, connections to radar station. It's like, no, just prove the first one before you, you know, pile on. Yeah. Yuvarov claims these spheres intercepted meteorites, including the tongue, well, the Tungus meteorite or the Tunguska event in 1908 and the Chulam meteorite in 1984 and the Vidim meteorite in 2002. Allegedly, radiation levels in the area are increasing again and wildlife is mysteriously leaving the woods as if sensing an impending event. Despite the fascination with these theories, the primary goal remains to confirm the existence of the cauldrons and understand their nature. Why don't you go find one first before you come up with all these theories? <laughs> You're being very judgy this time. <laughs> Listen, I don't claim to be a scientist. No, I don't. This, this is theory on I, top of theory without even proving that these things exist. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to have a theory about something and it's not like a, a super broad topic, like this is my theory on Bigfoot or this is my theory on aliens or whatever. When you're talking about something that specific and you've never even seen one, mm -hmm. right? Because he's never he wasn't one of the people that went out there and got the boils on his faces and, you know, lost his hair. So yeah, maybe go see one before you tell us everything about it yeah yeah i think one yeah. of the more realistic aspects of some of the old star trek shows mm -hmm. was when they would encounter artifacts they would not necessarily know what they were mm -hmm. like i feel like if we ran across alien technology we would not immediately have an idea of what it is like exactly. oh this is a plasma turret that's going to protect us from whatever it's like mm -hmm. i have no idea what this is I mean, there were there were episodes of the original series, and then there was an animated series that continued those stories after the live action one was canceled, where they'll find artifacts. And it's like I have no idea what this is. Like we can analyze it, or we can like screw with it and see what happens. Right. Obviously, screwing with it and seeing what happens makes for a better story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he didn't do any of that. <laughs> so. Despite the fascination with these theories, the primary goal remains to confirm the existence of the cauldrons and understand their nature. Specific information about their location is scarce, with only a vague notion that they are somewhere near the Olguadoc River, a tributary of the Vilui, deep in the taiga. It sounds like I'm reading made-up shit. <laughs> it does, yeah. This sounds like some Lord of the Rings stuff. Look. <laughs> <laughs> Locating these cauldrons in such a vast and impenetrable area poses a significant challenge. Eyewitnesses who could potentially guide researchers are conspicuously absent, making blind exploration on foot futile. No, I don't like the word futile. You got to get out there if you're going to find it. So get out there. To overcome this obstacle, a plan for aerial exploration during a season when the snow is melted and the trees are bare, allowing an unobstructed view of the ground, has been devised. Helicopter exploration proves financially unfeasible, costing $1,500 an hour. As an alternative, a powered hang glider was considered, but its limitation 
in densely vegetated regions led researchers to reject the idea. Ultimately, researchers opted for motor paragliding, utilizing a motor-propelled parachute that enables takeoff and landing in small areas, providing a practical means to investigate this mysterious phenomenon further. We need we need to invent the go-go gadget like helicopter thing where it popped out of his hat. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Except right. you'd be dragged around by your head. <laughs> It'd be hard. Well, maybe we'll make a backpack version. <laughs> now, as, as dark as Disney is, they do have some decent shows. And, and there's a show, I can't remember what the name of it is, but there's like six to eight episodes. And there's this guy who has a LiDAR drone. And he has uncovered cities uh-huh. that have been, you know, like from the Aztecs and the Incas and the Mayans that look like forest they absolutely show no signs of anything and he flies the lidar over it and it basically you know prints out or or shows on the screen the entire city with the vegetation removed it's amazing technology and and that's a really good show too but that's what they need to be looking at i mean I know Russia's kind of in a bad spot right now, but if you really want to figure this out, you get a bunch of these drones, you get a bunch of people on horseback because you can't really, you know, pack a bunch of shit on a reindeer unless you got a sleigh hooked up to it and send them out there. And I'm sure that there's universities around the world that would be willing to help foot the bill provided that their people get to do the exploring. So I don't know. That's, that's my suggestion to you, Valerie. Yeah, I would agree with that because that's exactly what they did in that recent episode of expedition unknown. Although first they had to like kind of try to figure out where it was. They were looking Mm -hmm. for, I think the last Mayan city, there were basically Mayan, I think it was Mayans that broke away that lived and they survived like over a hundred years without the Spaniards being able to find them. Yeah. And they were trying to find the city and they had these ancient maps and things like that. that were, it listed the location as being there on the key, but it was not actually marked on the map. But they had accounts, you know, it was a day's walk from here and it was right. near this river or whatever. So they were able to trace where it was. And then, yeah, they kept finding cut stones and things like that. But they eventually just flew a LiDAR drone up, which I don't know how much LiDAR equipment costs, but I know that the drones are not super expensive because these are all drones that are custom made. And it's it's yeah. a hobbyist thing. Cause I used to be really into yeah. that kind of stuff and it's like, you can buy a frame. I mean, there are, there are companies that this is what they do. They make the frames for them. They make the controllers, they make the motors. You can buy all these parts, mix and match how you want, make it able to lift whatever it is you need up, you know, within reason. And then it's just a matter of getting that equipment on it and being able to run it. But it was this kind of similar to what you described. They're able to show, you know, this Valley looks like what, was described by the Spaniards back in the day. And when they run the LIDAR, it's like, okay, we can see that there's likely a building over here, building over here, or at least the platforms where they used to be. I don't know though, man, do you want to, do you want to have, you know, a thousand dollar drone 
and put a $45,000 piece of machinery on it and throw it 380 feet up in the air and hope it doesn't crash. Yeah. Yeah. As long as it's not your money, right? <laughs> well, I mean, what else are you going to do? It's kind of one of those That's things. That's true. Like, what, there's not, I mean, you don't, it's all going to be risky. However you yeah. implement it, it's going to be risky. Like a human with some kind of aircraft could screw up. Yeah. You can uh, attach parachutes and stuff like that to some of these drones as well. Oh, yeah. Because I remember smart. at least at least you used to be able to. Because when I was looking at building one myself, I found like basically parachute systems where if there was a failure, you could just kill all the motors and it would it would do a parachute. Pop the parachute. Just, yeah. So that if it was just kind of free fall. That's awesome. Either you could kill the motors or if they happen to just stop, if there was a separate sort of emergency system like a separate button separate receiver separate battery that would deploy that that's awesome they've thought of everything well because there were there were people taking like you're like you're saying like a three or four hundred dollar drone they're putting like five thousand dollar ten thousand dollar cameras on them for sort of either documentary use or really advanced hobbyist use or for making movies and things like that the thing that i don't get about all this is you know where the Tunguska event happened. There's miles and miles of trees that it laid down. Mm. And we know that the second meteorite allegedly followed the same path. And that's where you need to look for these cauldrons. I mean, that's a good starting point. And I know that the Tunguska blast is like thousands and thousands of acres. So it's not like, oh, here's a football field size place for you to search. But don't act like it's totally impenetrable and you have no idea what to do. So you're just going to make shit up about it. Go to where the trees have fallen and yeah. put your LIDAR up and let's get this done. Valerie I'm calling you out, Val. <laughs> yeah. The and then Valerie name. wants, if he wants to be on the show, he can email us. We'll talk there to him about it. Maybe he'll tell yeah. us what's wrong. Maybe we'll be able to, maybe I can build him a drone. It's been a long time since I messed with drones. Ooh. Maybe you could build us a drone and we could just hover it above uh, Cahokia Mounds 24-7 and see what happens there. Yeah. I would love to put a fucking trail cam out there somewhere and just come back like a month later. But yeah, we definitely need to do a another event at Cahokia Mounds. We just have to figure out the truth. See a giant hand sticking out, something like that. Here's where we dig, fellas. <laughs> yeah, so what are your final thoughts? So I think it's a really interesting mystery, mm -hmm. but there's not a ton to go on. We've talked about illnesses that seem like radiation and I don't know. I guess maybe that could be something that would make you think this is some kind of advanced technology that's been left behind by something else, either another civilization or extraterrestrials, but it could also just be things left behind by, by meteor strikes now that I'm thinking about it because you've seen the way a bullet will deform when it hits right. sand or dirt or something like that. It's possible that these indentations with these ridges could be a metallic meteorite hitting the ground and just deforming that way. And then they're just yeah. getting buried over time. So it could just be that. And those, I mean, who knows they could be radioactive too. I don't know if that's yeah. common, but I mean, in the vastness of space, probably anything is possible. Just depends oh, on where they've been and where yeah. they're coming from. 
Well, they had to make it through the Van Allen belt, right? So sure. you would think they'd be soaked in radiation, but hey, what do I know? Yeah. What about you? Listen, I don't think that like tribes in the wherever, you know, where it's not a lot of outside interference are going to make something up like that because they know what comes. It's white people and horses and money and scandal and what have they done what have what has science done you miss my quotation marks there but what has science done that they haven't left behind a bunch of garbage right sure they don't want to have people come in and be like oh Oh, now this is a, this is a historical site. You guys got to move. Um, you know, you can yeah. go over on, you know, go, go to, uh, the Ural mountains, right. Where they did the, uh, the Dyatlov pass. Yeah. I mean, what's in it for them? You know what I mean? I don't see why they would make it up unless they're, you know, it's like some young prankster being like, ha ha ha, watch me get all these stupid people to come out here and look for huge metal balls in the middle of the forest it just seems like it i mean i don't think i don't think that natives are going to make this stuff up and no. you can say well what about what about folklore and you know they say that there's uh you know like the winged serpent god in i think it's chichen itza or chichen itza whatever yeah. um but but that's different than we have these crazy metal spheres that nobody understands right and there's yeah. coast Costa Rican stone spheres too, that are the same deal where they're, they're not quite that big, but you know, they're like 15 foot in diameter, perfect spheres. Nobody knows how they got there. No machine, no tool marks, no nothing, but they're perfectly smooth, round and spherical. Yeah. It's when it's folklore, there's usually a purpose to it or some kind of message mm -hmm. and they know the story on it. Yeah. They're not folklore is not usually there's this weird stuff off in the woods and we don't know what it is. Right. That's not really right. folklore. That's just a report. I don't know. I think it's interesting. I, I see no reason to disbelieve why they would be out there. Um, I don't think that this guy is taking the, you know, this guy could be 65, 70 years old too. So we should take that into account. I mean, he's probably doing the best that he, he can or the best he thinks he can. Yeah. And there's probably people that have come to him and been like, well, what do you think about this? What do you think? Tell us, what do you think? And he's like, well, you know, it could be this. And then all of a sudden now that's his theory. You know what I mean? True. Yeah. So I don't know. I'd, I'd like to, you know, visit, out there and see if I could track one of these down. I don't have a whole lot of hair left to lose. So yeah, you know, my luck, my beard would fall out and I'd get like a patch of hair that grew in, like in the middle of my forehead or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My beard would go away and I just have back hair instead. Just more. Oh, gosh. Wouldn't that be the way it would work out too? Yeah. It's like, I can grow my own Cape now. How wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Grow it out long enough and you got wings. Yeah. All right. I guess that about wraps it up. You want to you tell them what they need to know? Yeah. Please like, subscribe, share with somebody who you think would like it. Share with somebody through the platform, however you want to engage. It's all helpful. 
You can check out our socials. We're all over the place. We're also starting to use YouTube, so check that out in the show notes. You can see what we're selling over on CryptiquePodcastStore.com. And as always, if you want to get in touch and tell us how badly we mispronounced all these Russian names, you can do that at CryptiquePodcast.gmail.com and help us keep the servers on and buy me a coffee. And tell us if you like Ryan without a background or not. He's got kind of the old Sherlock Holmesy looking chair there where it looks like he probably can do some good thinking. But that background, we got to get some chatter back there, man. Yeah, I have some paintings and pictures sitting around me. You can actually see the edges of a frame picture yeah. here and a painting down there, but they're not hung up. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess that's all we've got for you tonight. Remember. Exploring dangerous places isn't about seeking adrenaline, right? But understanding the untamed, confronting our fears, and finding courage in the face of the unknown. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. 